1: Recording in progress.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It is great to see you all this fine morning. And we have some Kabbalah to cover this morning. Okay, so the topic is bitter and sweet. And when it comes to bitter and sweet, I think we know these as tastes, flavors, right? Something is either bitter or it's sweet or sweet or savory or somewhere in the middle, tart, different, different expressions. The question that we're going to explore today is, where do these tastes, where do these flavors, as it were, where do they come from? Hey, morning. Good to see you. Okay, where do they actually come from? So, I want to read to you a story that happened years ago. A story that happened with the previous Rebbe when he was a very young boy. It's a cute story, and I believe it holds a very uh, a very um, important message for us. Hey, Tim. Welcome. Great to see you. Okay, I'm going to read the story that happened with the previous Rebbe when he was a little kid. Okay, this is Rabbi Yosef Yosef Schneerson, the sixth Chabad Rebbe. So let's, listen to the story, and then we're going to do a story, and then an analysis. The very first day, I came to Cheder as a small child. What's Cheder, by the way? Cheder is like a... Jewish school. Like, yeah. So the very first day I came to Cheder, as a small child, I was brought by my father and my uncle. So I would imagine he was probably, I don't know what, when do you first go to school back in the day, back in the shtetl? You would go, I don't know, three, four, five, six years, right. somewhere, whatever. Maybe four or five years old. right, Little kid. So as is the custom, they threw candies at me. Okay? And they told me that the art, that the... How do you pronounce it? Archangel? Arch- Archangel. Archangel? Archangel? Archangel Michael had thrown them. Okay, you with me on this? So they brought him to school, to, to like, uh, you know, Jewish school for the first time. By the way, Jewish school probably wasn't like a fancy building. It was probably just like a room and a house so with... School. Huh? huh? Okay, I knew it was a right, yeah, I don't think there were, uh, yeah. Like, probably a few kids and a teacher. So, but they threw candies at him. Now, we have a custom of throwing candies. Like, in synagogue, when, before the Shabbat, before someone gets married, you know, you throw the candies or whatever. Like, on a special occasion, we throw candies. Back then, in that, you know, the, the custom then was, maybe it's still is today, I don't remember ever getting candies during it, to be honest. I don't think bar- that. Sh- bar-mit-zuh, bar-mit-zuh. No, bar mitzvah, right, bar mitzvah. No, but I mean, like, going to school. First day of school. Whatever. Anyway, so they threw candies at him. His father, who was the, the, the fifth Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, Rebbe Shalom Ber Shneerson, and his uncle, the Raza, so like his father and, and his father's brother, his uncle, so they threw candies at him, and they said, the candies are coming from Malach Michal, the angel Michael. Okay? Hold on. The story gets better. Okay. <laughs> now, my father told me, he says, that when he was brought to cheder, you with me now? It's a story in a story. So he got thrown candies at him, but then by his father and his. Uncle, and then his father told him that when he was brought to cheder to school, his grandfather, uh huh, I'm going to test you on the names after this. Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch, that was the tzemach Tzeder the third Chabad Rebbe. His grandfather was still alive, and he threw candies and told him the same thing that the archangel Michael had thrown them. Now. The previous Rebbe says, my father took this very seriously. You know, when, when he got thrown, his father also had it happen to him. Uh, not happen to him. He was throwing candies at him. And his father took it very seriously. Listen to this. To the point that he didn't want to eat the candies They were so precious to him. Because, you know, if an angel throws candies at you, <laughs> you know, you're not, it's not like, oh, cool, candy. It's like, this is like special candy. Special candy over here. Eventually the day before Passover arrived. And as usual, they were checking the pockets of the small children for crumbs of bread. Because, you know, you got to clean for Passover, no crumbs, no bread. And so who typically has bread in their pockets back in the day? Kids. Maybe adults also, but, you know, just throw some bread in the pocket, just like take it to go. So they checked the the pockets of the kids for, (laughs) for crumbs. And his grandfather called him and asked him where he kept the candies. Where did you get the candies? At that point, he had to eat them all. So the day before Passover, he had to eat, because they were chametz. they weren't kosher for Passover candies. Nowadays, you can get kosher for Passover anything, including pizza, bagels, and bread, because it's made out of potatoes, through the miraculous uh, inventions of modern technology. But back then, the candy was not uh, kosher for Passover, and they had to, he had to eat all his... This is the previous rabbi saying about his father... His father ended up eating all the candies the day before Passover to get rid of them, but that's uh, how precious they were. And the previous Rebbe concludes, this is the kind of education we have to have. This is chinuch, this is education. Now, that's the story. The Rebbe, our Rebbe, spoke about this story. And he said something pretty amazing. You know, if you read the story, it seems like a bit of a babamisa, you know what Baba Misa is? like a tall tale. It's like, all right. The candies, the angel, it's not really an angel that threw the candies. The parents, the father, the uncle, the grandfather, depending on the story, they were the ones that threw the candies. It wasn't like the angel who threw the candies. It seems like a Baba Misa. However, however, the, uh, the, the Rebbe, our Rebbe, spoke about this. And listen to what he said. Heaven forbid... We should tell a child an untruth. It is a Jewish custom to throw the candies. And a Jewish custom is also Torah, the Torah of truth. Everything the child has told is true. Those who throw the candies are doing it on behalf of the archangel Michael, the angel who seeks out the merits of the Jewish people. The sweetness of the candies is the sweetness of Torah as it descends and clothes itself in a physical object. You with me on this? The sweetness of the candy is really the sweetness of Torah, in a physical incarnation. We're going to unpack this today, all right? But I'm not done yet with the quote. An adult won't accept this. In other words, if right now you're listening to me, I'm now giving my commentary, and you're like ah, you're like side eyeing this whole conversation, the Rebbe preempts this. An adult won't accept this because he sees that he and not an angel is the one throwing the candies. The adult's like, I'm throwing the candies, or that guy's throwing the candies. When a child is older, we can explain to him that this is only a garb, like a garment for something much higher. But when he is a three-year-old child just beginning his education, we tell him these things clothed in a story, and he has no problems with any of it. Nevertheless, when he grasps the outer clothing, the child grasps the archangel Michael and the sweetness of Torah and all the truth that is within that clothing. This is a powerfully deep idea talking about sweetness and angels and candies and Torah and garments and parables. And that excerpt from the Rebbe's talk was from 1974 and 1978. Two talks that the Rebbe gave on this story combined together. So I want to speak about sweetness. Where does sweet come from? Now, the first thing we need to know is that in our, in our own language, we don't have to get mystical. We don't have to talk about stories of rabbis and candies and cheder. In our American American language, I don't think we speak American, in our English language, at least as spoken here in America, we call things sweet all the time, right? You see a young child, ah, oh, what a sweet little boy. Time out. One second. What do you mean by sweet? Tasted? Yeah, tasted it? Like, what do you mean sweet? Or, imagine. Imagine the scene. Someone's driving. You're dry, you, it's a you. You're driving down the road and it's raining. And you see someone park their car. And go to the trunk of the car and start taking out bags of groceries. It's a residential neighborhood. And they're going to walk to their house, holding the bags and get wet. And meanwhile, you have an umbrella in your front seat. So you quickly pull over right behind them. Yeah? And you park your car. You get out with your umbrella. And you say, hey, can I hold the umbrella and help you to your car? And they say to you, that's so sweet of you. What does that mean? What does that mean? Flavor? We're talking flavor? So now everyone knows. Everyone knows that when you use the word sweet, it doesn't necessarily mean a taste. Doesn't necessarily mean literally sweet. Now we use sweet to connote taste, but we also use sweet to connote actions or sentiments or ideas. We use sweet in, let's, shall we say, borrowed terms. So sweet could be understood literally. Or when I say literally the way it's manifest in in taste, in the world of the world of eating, something sweet, or sweet can exist in a different reality. In the world of actions, in the world of feelings, in the world of sentiments, etc. Right? Sweet can exist in many different places. The question is, what's the real sweet? Right? What's the real sweet? Is it is the sweet begin with food? And then it's applied to other areas? Or does we really originate in other areas and we apply it to food? Are you with me on the question? And you might say, who cares? It's a weird question to ask. But let me, let me tell you why, why the stakes are a little bit higher. Certainly vis-a-vis Torah study. So let's jump into some Torah study now. All right? When it comes to Torah study, here's what we know. When I say Torah study, I'm talking about the actual five books of Moses. The Torah uses anthropomorphic terminology regarding God. The Torah talks about God's seeing. Talks about God's eyes. There's a verse in Torah and Deuteronomy. It says, Guys, God's eyes are on the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. I think we, ha- we read about it last week, uh, a couple of coffee. God's eyes. God has eyes. God took the Jewish people out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. An outstretched arm? Very interesting. <laughs> what did that look like? Right? God's mighty hand. What does that mean? Because, and I'll tell you why this is questionable and highly suspicious, because in Judaism, Judaism prescribes to a very fierce theology of God not having any corporeality. God not possessing anything that resembles a body. God does not have physical form. God does not have a physical body. God does not have any of these features. In fact, it's one of the 13 principles of faith as articulated by Maimonides. In his top 13 foundational ideas of Judaism, Maimonides writes that one of them is the notion that Hashem, that God Almighty, has no guf. Guf is Hebrew for body. And has no attribute, has, has no bot, doesn't have a body or bodily actions. It's not how it works. So then how do you make sense of Torah? Torah ascribes Torah bodily features to God. Hey, Donna, good to see you. So how do, you, how do you reconcile the two? On the one hand, Maimonides is telling us that Judaism, it's a big no-no to ascribe any bodily features to God, and yet the Torah does exactly that. So elsewhere, Maimonides explains. So we're going to do a lot of Rambam right now. Maimonides says that every time you encounter Scripture, a verse in Scripture that ascribes a physical form to God, it's only meant to be read as an analogy as a parable. It's not that God actually used an outstretched arm to rescue the Jewish people. It's not like, you know, an arm extended from the heavens and scooped us up, scooped our ancestors up and took us out of the land of Egypt. It means that the Exodus happened with a lot of flourish, a lot of fanfare, a lot of strength. So like someone who would rescue, like a human being who would rescue another with an outstretched arm, with a mighty hand, That's how God rescued the Jewish people. Not exactly in the physical way, although we were rescued physically, but in a way that evokes the concept. It's conceptual. It's not not concrete. Does that make sense? Yes? So that's how Maimonides explains the anthropomorphisms of the Bible. Don't read them literally. Read them figuratively. They're not, it's not, God doesn't, Actually, have eyes, right? God's eyes are upon the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Don't believe. Don't don't imagine that God has actual eyes, right? God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have eyes. It's like, oh, God, God has eyes. Interesting. What color are those eyes? Right? Blue, green, brown. Like what's what? What are God's eyes? God doesn't have eyes. So all of this, yeah. <laughs>
1: but how do you know when something is literal?
0: Ah, good. Excellent. By the way, so Don is asking, how do we know when something's literal or not? Excellent question. By the way, there are volumes that deal with this. How to read Torah, how to read Midrash, how to read you know, other sources, Talmud, the Agadic stories, the Midrashic stories. We talked about that. Michael asked about that last week a little bit on our, at our Kabbalah and coffee class. God to perform miracles, exactly. And miracles that happen but the bodily form that we ascribe to God is not the literal understanding but i want to upend the entire conversation and i'll tell you, and you'll see what i mean in a moment because typically the way we understand rambam maimonides is like this that we have hands we have arms we have eyes and god god doesn't but the torah is using An analogy, right, Torah uses a parable to refer to God in this way. But it's not literal, right? It's not that God literally has eyes, literally has a hand, literally has an arm. God metaphorically has these attributes or features, but it's not meant to be understood in a literal fashion. That is the typical way we understand it. But who has the arm? Who has the hand? Who has the eyes? We do. But I want to share with you what Kabbalah says. So that's Rambam, and you can understand Rambam the way typically for when did Rambam live, the Rambam lived, the eleven hundreds or so. So for what nine hundred years, we've been understand. Most people have understood Rambam this way. But I want to share with you what Rabbi Moses Moshe Kodavero writes, the Ramak, one of the great mystics of the fifteen hundreds. The Ramak, or Moshe Kodavero writes that we got it all wrong. It's backwards. It's backwards. Stay with me for a second. It's not that we have the hand and God doesn't have the hand. God has the real hand and ours is but a weak representation of what it really means to have a hand. Are you with me on that? This is, it's mind-blowing, and I, I hope to do justice to the concept. And if I don't, I apologize. It's kind of like, I don't know, I forget the word. You know, an artificial limb type of... Thing. Right, right. It's an said. artificial limb. In other words, in other words, when we think of hand, don't think of it in the noun, but think of it in the verb, right? Like, what do hands do? Or an in, in ear, let's say, God, right, an ear or an eye, because God, God, God's eyes are upon the land. So God, so God doesn't have an eye, because God doesn't have a physical body. But God has truer eyes than our eyes, because what are eyes? Eyes are about seeing, so when we say that God has eyes, what does it mean? Seeing and awareness. Where's the true seeing and awareness? With God. In other words, it originates with God. And our eyes are but a very dim, a, I think you're looking for a prosthetic, prosthetic limb, right? It's a very, a very dim replica. It's like a knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff. It's like, Walking back in the day, it's like going to Times Square and buying, like, a Folex that doesn't even look like the real deal. It's so... God is not doing the analogizing. We're doing the analogizing. You with me on this? Our hand is the analogy, not God's hand. So the way we would typically understand it is that we, we have the eyes. God... It's a, you know, God is the parable. Here's the truth. We are the parable. When it says that we're creating the divine image, you know what that means? God has the real eyes. God has the real ears. God has the real arm. God has the real hand. But not, obviously, in a physical way. <laughs> because our physical, man, if our physical components are very weak embodiments, literal embodiments of these things abilities of these capabilities, very limited, very weak and very limited, how far can our eyes see? I mean, everyone knows that even in our immediate vicinity, there's literally something called a blind spot. Why? Due to the limitations of the human eye and human vision, due to the limitations of the human brain in in understanding what the eye, in, in, in interpreting what comes into the eye. Due to all these limitations and more, the eye has a very limited capacity. The eyes have very limited capacity. What about God's eyes? God's eyes are infinite. God's eyes are unlimited. So oh, but God doesn't have an eye. The Ramach says, God doesn't have an eye. We don't have an eye. You with me on this? That's the point. That's how everything gets turned upside down. Again, when you read Maimonides, and it's not, he it's not, he's not disagreeing with Maimonides, he's explaining the depth of the, of the of the relationship between analogy and analog. It's not that we have the real deal and God is the analogy. It's that God has the real deal and we're the analogy. So when we talk about God's eyes and Maimonides says, well, God doesn't have eyes. The Ramak says, actually, God has the true eyes. Our eyes aren't the real eyes. When we think about something sweet, manifest in food, right? So think about a candy, like our story with the previous Rebbe. He goes to Cheder, they throw candies at him, and they tell him, you should know the candies are coming from the angel Michael. Right? Candies are sweet. I mean, some candies are sweet. Other candies may not be sweet. But these candies were sweet. And so the question is, where does sweet come from? I wrote this in the email last night. Where does flavor come from? Where does sweet come from? One could say, well, sweet begins right here. Sweet candies. An apple is sweet. Where does that come from? Well, the apple is sweet. It's right here. Where does the concept of sweet come from? So a person might say like this. Sweet, a candy is sweet. An apple is sweet. And when we talk about values or behaviors or ideologies as being sweet or sentiments being sweet, that's an analogy of the concrete Sweetness of an apple or a candy. And what Kabbalah would say is, in Yiddish, we would say, Pum exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. In other words, what's really sweet? The concept of sweet is sweet. I don't know if I'm saying that clearly. In other words, sweet exists in the higher realms in the form of chesed. Chesed is sweet. Chesed of Atzilut. Chesed of the highest realm of emanation, the world of emanation. Chesed is kindness, is love, is sweet. When somebody does an act of kindness, you say, oh, that's so sweet. So sweet of you. That's the real sweet. A candy is but a faint representation of what sweet really is. Sweet begins, by the way, the angel Michael, what do you think he's the angel of? Chesed. There you go. The angel of chesed. The angel of kindness. So the angel of kindness is where the candies are coming from. When they told the child that these candies are are coming from the angel Michael, from the angel Michal, you know what it means? That sweetness that you can experience down here is ultimately coming from the ultimate sweetness. Right? The cosmic sweetness. Chesed of Atzilo, chesed of the highest realm. It's not a contradiction, and it's not a Baba Misa. In fact, that's not the fake story that the angel Michael is thrown. The fact that candies are sweet is, okay, it's not a fake story because it's really sweet, but that is the, the, the weaker or the lowly um, manifestation of such. Again, going back, going back to the eyes. Who has better eyes? <laughs> God or us? Oh, God doesn't have eyes. Okay, who has better vision? Who has better awareness? God or us? I hope the answer is clear, right? I hope, I hope we don't have to struggle with that question too long. <laughs> hours, hours. Uh, softball question, softball question, right? So the point is that, it, that all of these qualities, whether it's strength or whether it's awareness or whether it's sweetness, they all originate above. And what we have here, what, what's operating here in this world is but a parable. This is the parable of what the true reality is. Makes, makes sense? Michael, did you have a question before?
1: I, I did. You kind of went past it, but, but you know, something you just said really harkens back to what I was going to ask about. You know, this idea of, of the parable, you know, you, you, your story of the child, you, you said that, you know, that, that you, talk about, you know, we only tell the children truth, and we did tell them truth because it was a parable. But if, if you don't understand the truth, as it's related to you in other words if the parable leads you to think something differently even though were you to understand the parable you would understand exactly what was meant but if you don't understand you know and i was thinking about this in the context of you know i've always thought of you know when the, when the torah talks about you know god's outstretched arm and all that you know and, and i don't want to disrespect our ancestors but maybe they were a simple people and maybe they didn't have an ability to understand and so they anthropomorphize god because that's what people were comfortable with but is that really truth if they understand it in that way, okay, so they, they take the parable literally, have you really told them truth?
0: Excellent question. Um, Excellent question. And I think that's what the Rebbe was addressing in his talk from 1974, 1978, when he says, and I'll go back to that quote, where he says, when we tell a three-year-old child just beginning his education, we tell him these things clothed in a story and he has no problems with any of it. nevertheless, when he, and this is the key line. Nevertheless, when he grasps the outer clothing, the child grasps the, the archangel Michael and the sweetness of Torah and, and all the truth that is within the clothing. In other words, when we have a parable that is originating from Torah, the parable itself is powerful. The parable itself is holy. In other words, the garment itself becomes part of the, of, of the analog of the experience itself, of the truth of the experience. It's kind of like, you know, there's different types of, of clothing or shells, but you have a situation with a turtle. If you try to grab the shell of a turtle, you're also grabbing the turtle. When a child understands it, on the most basic level, that the angel is actually throwing the candies at him, that's not not true. Right? Now the child imagines you know, uh, a, a physical anthropomorphized version of it and that's not 100% the accurate and, uh, reality of an angel. But the notion of an angel, um, you know, the, the sweetness of, of, of Chesed, of the angel being manifest in physical form, all of that is true. Yes, it does require a maturation process and learning it as an adult. But I would say that we should, uh, we should give a little bit more credit. I know you're not saying this definitively, but we should give a little bit more credit to the sages of old who spoke. In incredible, incredibly complex layers of, um, of 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 garments and garbing ideas in analogies and in parables and in stories and and that and, 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 and other, other types of uh, of contexts and sometimes in riddles. We've done classes where we spoke about curious tales of the Talmud. Of the Talmud. We talked about the great Athenian uh, debate, the rabbis of Jerusalem with the, uh, this, the 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 Greek philosophers of Athens. And how they went, they sparred in the context of riddles. And it's, it's just mind-blowing to unpack these ideas. But be that as it may, I think, I think we're talking about the same ideas. There is danger. There is a challenge in only thinking of it in the anthropomorphized, in the, in the analogy, just as it is in any situation. When any teacher presents a concept in the form of a story or a parable, you run the risk of the child only listening to the story and not understanding what, it's, what the story is really about. And so it does, it does require you know, a revisiting or, or deepening of, of the awareness. But the core idea here, and, and really the big, the big thing that I wanted to start off with today, is that most of us, because our vision, our eyes, and our mind begins with us, we typically think of this as real and everything else above as a mirror of our reality. But in truth, it's the opposite. Up there, and it's not up there physically, but the spiritual realm and the source is the truth, and we are the mirror. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. uh, The reflection goes the opposite way. Now with this, we can understand a little bit about the process which we have been going through over the last few weeks. The process by which the divine blessings flow from on high to our reality. So the blessings flow from the world of Atsil, the world of emanation to our physical world of Atsil, the world of action. And the question is, where do the blessings, where are the blessings? Right? Show me the blessings. <laughs> Show me the money. Where is that? And we've said that, you know, they originate in a spiritual world, in that realm. The blessings are all ethereal, and they're all you know, spiritual, and they're not concretized until it comes to our world, and that's when the blessings are. And of course, you know, our goal and our, you know, in life, many, at least, you know, what we, what we want is for the blessings to be materialized. And if they're not materialized, then what kind of blessings are they? Right? What, 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 what kind of, ble- what's it doing for me? So what we're going to do today inside, I think we're going to get started on the inside uh, text um, because it's so important. It's so important over here. What we're going to do today is see how the blessings, as they originate, are really the; those are the real blessings. Those the blessings in the spiritual state that's the real McCoy. Our manifestations, like the candy, so where's the real chesed? The real chesed, the real kindness, the real sweetness is above. The candies that we get, the candies that are thrown at us, are the the the, the dim representations of what's really sweet. Now, I know what you're thinking. I don't care. Throw me the candies, right? <laughs> I don't care. Throw me the candies. But it, it, I think it helps at least contextualize in a, in, a, in a place, in a space of truth, as to what the score really is. Now, even if our conclusion will be, I get it, I understand it, I appreciate it. So, wow, that's so sweet. You know, that's so amazing it's so beautiful. But I still want the candy. That's fine. But at least let's understand and appreciate what the blessings on that higher realm, on that higher space look like. All right, so let's, I'm going to pass these around. I'll pull up the text on the screen as well. And let's get started. actually I think Centurion has a copy. That's what I found. The Tanya 26 he talks about how everything starts off, yes, how everything comes from God, and everything starts off as a blessing, and just the way it tumbles down here it, uh, the, and the higher the blessing, the less sweet the less candy it is, the more like uh, a dry wine, perhaps it is. And to the, to the one who wants candy, it's like, huh. it's like. I don't like this stuff. I'm not saying we have to develop a taste for the, 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 the stuff that we perceive as negative. But there is, listen, you saw chapter 26. I mentioned that you saw it inside. It's a tif- difficult chapter. It's, it's difficult to understand. It's even more difficult to actually live with. But it's a powerful idea. Okay, let's take a look at, let's jump in. Oh, what's going on over here? We're going to begin with, oh, discourse 21. Okay, yeah. It started, well, the handout starts with 20, but let's turn a few pages to page two. Yeah, 292. Page 292. Here we go. We've been dealing with, and we're going to put it up on the screen in a moment. In a momento. Hold on. We've been talking about, last week we did a deep dive into the Talmud, into the uh, three-way dispute as to when we're judged. So what the, the, the rabbis say we're judged between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The judgment is made on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, Rabbi, who, wait, hold on, what were the names? Rabbi Natan, I want to say. Yeah, was that him? Rabbi Nathan. Okay, what, another opinion said that the judgment happens every day. And a third opinion says it happens every hour. And so we explained last week that it's not actually a dispute. It's not, they're not actually disagreeing. Why not? Because the, 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 the decision, the judgment, and the flow of blessings, that originates on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It originates in Rosh Hashanah, it's sealed in Yom Kippur, it's determined the allotment for every person, but not the specifics of what form that allotment of blessings will take. How much bandwidth how will it take the form of health? or money or family blessings like what form will that blessing take which 3 which 2 out of 3 or is it 3 out of 3 and if it's whatever and however many of those 3 whatever number it has how to what extent will that be specified Sorry, to what extent will that be manifest? To what extent will that be a blessing? Will it be 100%? Will it be 80%? 50%? Whatever, I don't know whatever the percentage is of, but to what extent will there be that blessing in that area? So all, the, all that is determined on a daily or even hourly basis. Let's jump into Discourse 21, Chapter 1, the sages' opinion. Back to the sages. However, the sages maintain that the decision about man's sustenance is made fully on Rosh Hashanah. Not that it starts in Rosh Hashanah and then it it kind of uh, unfolds throughout the year. No, the decision about man's sustenance is fully made in Rosh Hashanah, including all his and his family's family's needs for children, health, and prosperity. Those are the three areas that we've been talking about. They maintain, the sages maintain, that man's verdict is sealed on Yom Kippur, as the Talmud says in Rosh Hashanah, page 16a. In this opinion, all the particulars of the individual's affairs for the year, for life or the opposite, and all his experiences are determined in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In other words, everything is set between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur for the whole year. We cannot say... Now, okay, so that's that's at least what the sages' opinion appears to be. However, we have a problem here. Because spiritually, Kabbalistically... We know that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, things are still on a much higher level. Things are still operating in a world of emanation. So let's jump back inside. We cannot say, then, that the decision does not include the configuration it assumes in the material world. For otherwise, what is the meaning of the final decision and sealing? In other words, you can't say that it's not Determining what's actually going to happen down here because then, what kind of what, what does it mean that it, the final decision and ceiling happens in Yom Kippur? What would it mean that all his experience are decided? If decided doesn't mean decided, then what does it mean? We must say that the beneficence allotted has indications of the material form it will assume in the mundane world. In other words, according to this opinion, the sage's opinion, It seems logical to say that they believe that on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's actually decided and allotted on some level of material form what the blessings, what form the blessings will assume in the mundane world. This, though, of course, is a problem. Same problem we had before. For Asiya, our physical world, has no common elements with Atzilut, the world of emanation where the blessings originate. So how can the chesed, the kindness that flows to malchut of atzilut contain material dimension. In other words, we explained that Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the world, things are operating in the world of emanation. You have chesed flowing to malchut. Malchut is the decision maker. Chesed is the kindness. The kindness is being decided. But it's still in the realm of Atsilot. It's still the realm of emanation. It's not a concretized. And yet, the sages seem to say that on some level, Things have been decided even vis-a-vis material life, material existence. How do we reconcile this problem? Now, the other opinions are saying that, no, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, it's only spiritual. And then as it fans out throughout the year, every single day, it becomes concretized. Fine. But the sages seem to indicate that even the materialization is happening on some level on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. But how could that be if we're still operating in the world of Atsilat, the world of emanation. Doesn't make sense. So he explains it like this. And this is going to be amazing. Mind-blowing ideas. A lot of Kabbalah, but hey, that's why we're here. For this, we must turn to Torah R. Torah portion of Vayera, discourse beginning Patachalia. Okay, Torah R, you should know, is a, uh, a book of, that contains discourses from the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, that is organ- that that are organized by the weekly parsha, the weekly Torah portion. So it's a com- it's a compilation of many years of the Alter Rebbe's discourses, and it's compiled on the Torah portions. Now, Torah R is very diff- typically very difficult to understand because that's generation one of Chabad Hasidic philosophy. Over the years, things have been explained more and more and more and elaborated upon, etc. This is like. The original, like OG generation, right? What first, language gen- was the, the Alter Rebbe, Torah is like the first generation of Chabad Hasidic philosophy, huh? Was it in originally? Well, he spoke the discourses in Yiddish, but they were written in in Hebrew, or he wrote them in Hebrew also. So original. The original penning, yeah, the original publication is is Hebrew, typically on on, on discourses. You yeah, have exceptions, on on you know. Exceptions, but the, the, by and large, it's Hebrew.
1: But he, his thought process was in Yiddish. Probably. Yiddish is, I don't believe it's such a rich language, right?
0: I mean... I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a language that was spoke by... Yiddish was spoke by... As
1: far as a bill, you know, because French is very I, rich.
0: So I don't know enough about the linguistics, although I do know someone who does know, Professor Miriam Udel. She did a... Uh, we did a virtual Yiddish course with her toward the beginning of, of the pandemic, she would, she would know. I believe there is some colorful language in uh, <laughs> many levels in Yiddish. <laughs> A lot of colorful language. But anyway, the point is that in this, uh, in this book of Torah, Ar, this is what he talks about. Over there, it discusses that, listen to this, greater than the incomparability of Asiyah to Atsilut, Atzilut is the incomparability of Atsilut to the infinite light his essence. In other words, let me break this down. You have four worlds, spiritual worlds, Atzilut, Berea, Yetzirah, and Asiya. So world one to four, wow, that's a big gap. But he says in Taraar, the Atreber writes in Taraar, that the gap, listen to this, the gap between Asiya, our world, and the world of emanation, the, the first world, is far less of a gap than between The first world and the Ein Sof, the infinite light, that's above it. You with me on this? In other words, in Kabbalah, and I'm just going to use my hands because I feel like I need to create some spatial, you know, uh, gestures here, gesticulations. So you have the Ein Sof, the infinite light, infinite light. And then you have the first world, the world of Etsilat, which is the world of emanation. So that's almost like the gap, and that is Professor Udell's husband and child right there. The, uh, <laughs> the, the coincidences abound. All right. So here we go. Um, you have the sof, the Ar sof, the infinite light. And then the first world that emerges is Atzilut. So you have a gap of one generation between Atzilut and the Ar between Atzilut and the infinite light. You have one, one, one step up. And yet, the Atarabah says that from the world of Asiyah, the world of action, to the world of Atzilut, is a far shorter jump than from Atzilut to Ainzel to infinite. Let me put it in numbers. You ready? What's closer, one to a million or a million to infinity? One to a million. Right? Why? Because any number, no matter how big the number is, When you compare that to infinity, it's a completely different picture. You with me on this? Whereas any two numbers, no matter how distant, still exist in the realm of numbers, of defined numbers. When you get out of the realm of defined numbers into infinite, it's qualitatively different. It's not quantitatively different. It's qualitatively different. So one to a million is quantitative. Get a million ones and you'll have a million. But a million to infinity, no matter how many millions of, millions of millions of millions of millions of millions you'll get, you'll never touch infinity. Because infinity is qualitatively different. The same thing is true with Ein Sof and the worlds that are beneath it. Ein Sof means God's infinite light. You know what infinite means? Doesn't take the form of a world, doesn't take the form of a realm. No Sfirot, Chesed, Gevurah, Teferet. That it doesn't have the shape of all the sphirot of the worlds that are part of that structure of worlds. So to go from Ein Sof to the highest spiritual godly world of Atzilut is an infinite jump. It's a jump of infinity. It's going from infinite to the highest number you can think of, but that's an infinite jump. It's an infinite gap to bridge. Whereas to go from the highest realm to the lowest realm, you'll get there. Just follow the path, you'll get there. You with me on this? You can follow the road from one to a million. You can follow the road from a million to a million millions to a million, million, million. million. Right, you, can, you can follow that path and eventually get there if you're patient enough. But you can't cross over to infinity. You can go from Asiya, our world, to Atsilut, the highest world. But to go from Atsilut to Ein Sof, that's another ticket. That's another. That's another. That's another journey altogether. That's an unbridgeable gap, which means. And I just want to want to um, telegraph this: the concept that we're about to get into, because it's it's very deep and it's powerful and it's it's exhilarating on many levels. But here's the idea: to go from God to God, from to go for, to move energy from God's infinite light. Into the highest world of Atzilut, that's the biggest jump, and that's the most important jump. What happens after that is going to be a natural flow. Does that make sense? Once you move it from infinite into somewhat of a finite space, well, now the rest can unfold. But the real work happens to move it from the infinite to the finite space. Let's jump inside, and let's see it in the text. Atsilot is, well, the translation usually is emanation. The four worlds in translation are emanation, creation, formation, and action. Emanation, creation, formation, and action. And the point here is that to go from action to emanation, although it's very lofty, it's, it's very high up, you can get there. But to go from emanation to infinite, that's a different reality. What happens, and just before, before we read it inside, what happens on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is that God's infinite light becomes, not concretized, but becomes expressed now in the world of emanation. And once that happens, then the rest can flow. But that's the biggest step from infinite to emanation, from infinite to atzilot, that's the biggest step. What happens after that is all successive generations. All right, let's jump inside and let's see this. I'm going to start again from where it says Atzilut from that paragraph. For this, we must turn to Torah R, where it discusses the following: Greater than the incomparability of Asiya to Atzilut, from the world of action to the world of emanation, is the incomparability of Atzilut to the infinite light, His essence, God's essence. So, as big as you think the journey is from the lowest world to the highest world, from the highest world to the Ein Sof to the infinite, is a much bigger journey, an infinite journey. Now, though we noted above. That Atzilut is removed. In other words, it's far loftier than the worlds of Bia, Bria, Yetzira, Asiya, creation, formation, and action. Yet, bottom line, it is also a world. The world of emanation is called a world. It's the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation. And as a world, it contains, as I mentioned before, it contains the ten spherot in the form of lights and vessels. That's what, oh, that's what defines something as a world. A world in Kabbalah is defined, does it have lights and vessels? Does it have ten spherot? Ten sefirot are the ten energies that power the worlds. Whatever worlds you're on, however subtle or spiritual, if it has the ten sefirot energies, chachma, bina, dar, chesed, netzach, if it has those ten energies, lights and vessels, it's a world. Atzilut, the world of emanation, it's so lofty, it's so ethereal, it has those, it's a world. Let's continue. True, it is actually godliness, but it's called godliness and not God, which would denote essence. Look at that. He gets very precise. It's godly, godliness. It's not God. When you, when you refer to a world as godly, it's a godly world. That's wonderful. But, we're not, but that's not God. It's a godly world. It's not God. It's a divine world. It's not the divine. There's a difference. Godliness, however, means godly, i.e. an extension of the radiance alone. It's just an extension of the radiance. Hence, atzilot, the world of emanation, the highest of the four worlds, can contain the ten spherot, and particularly the vessels that are entities, the sphere of chachma or Chasir. It contains those, I'm not going to say those physical components, but it contains those components that are that are part and parcel of a world. For this reason, the ten sphirot of atsilut are a source for the sfirot of biyah in the manner of hishtal shalut al, which have common aspects and are comparable to each other. What he's saying here is, and I know we have like a page change, which makes things always a little bit more complicated to, to, keep, uh, to keep the train of thought. He says, the ten Sfirot of Atsilot, that highest world, serve as a source for the Sfirot that will unfold in the three worlds beneath it. And it unfolds in a manner of Ishtashot Ivo'o, which means cause and effect. Which, in that case of cause and effect, there are common aspects that are comparable to each other. What that means on a very simple level is, when you talk about cause and effect, it means that something is causing the other thing and has a relationship to that thing. If you say that I pushed a button and the other thing happened, it means that somehow those two elements are connected. Because if I push a button and nothing happens, it means that they weren't connected, right? Push the button and nothing happened. Turn on the light, right? Hit the light switch. And the light turns on or off, okay? That means that somehow that button or that switch is connected to something else It's cause and effect. I hit that button, the lights turn on. Hit the button again, the lights turn off. But if I hit the button and nothing happens, that means that there's a gap between the two elements. So in the worlds, in the spiritual worlds, the world of Atsilot is the first realm, the first world in this mystical and this divine cause and effect system. So the first world contains the energies that then unfold in the next world, that then unfold in the world beneath it and in the world beneath it. So it unfolds in all of the worlds from that original point, from the world of Atzilut. And in, as the world of Atzilut is, it serves as a source for the energies in the subsequent worlds. That's what he's saying so far. That Atzilut, as far removed as it is from the other realms, it still serves as the source for the other realms. In a way of Ishtaoshalut, in a way of cause and effect, which means that there is some sort of close relationship. Let's continue. The Ishtaoshalut. Page 294, the Ishtashlut and coming into existence of Chachma of Asiyah, from Chachma of Atzilut. In other words, he's giving, you, he's giving us a practical example. How do you go from wisdom, wisdom in the world of emanation, to wisdom in our reality? Right? So you and I have wisdom, human wisdom. How does that compare to. Wisdom in the world of emanation. in the world of emanation. and how does one flow from the other? So he says that coming into existence of our Chachma from that Chachma above is similar to our sages saying there isn't any blade of grass below that does not have a Mazal above that strikes it and says grow. This is from the Medrash. Um, the medrash says that every blade of grass has a little Mazal that's hitting it and saying grow. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the depiction? I think, Michael, I think this is an example of uh, of a midrash that we're not meant to take in the literal sense of a little little uh, an, a little a angel or mazel that's like with a little stick that says, Grow, grass, grow. Um, and then sees a llama or is like, No, hide, run for your lives. That's not exactly what it's working. The point is that every physical being has a spiritual root and source that serves as its cause, that serves as its driver, that serves as its fuel. Nothing just exists below. Everything that exists below has a source above that is, that is um, fueling it. In ever ascending planes of transcendence, all characteristics grass or fruit have physically are contained in the spiritual mazel on all these planes. And I love that. I'll say that in my own words. Whatever physical characteristic grass has, or any given fruit has, those characteristics don't originate in the fruit or the grass. They originate in, in ever-ascending planes of existence. And on those planes of existence, those physical features are in spiritual form, which is what I, how I started today's class about the sweetness of an apple or the sweetness of a candy. Let's talk about an apple right here. Now, he says, a physical apple has physical sweetness. And he asks rhetorically, must we then assume that the vegetative power in the soil is also sweet? Like, where does that come from? Where does the sweetness of an apple come from? What, the ground is sweet? What, what makes the apple sweet? But the seed is sweet? Bite the seed. Yeah, bite the seed. Is it sweet? Taste the ground. Is it sweet? So where's it coming from? Obviously, he says, this cannot be said concerning the spiritual model of the apple and the sublime levels, which are devoid of any such characteristic. Right? In other words, you cannot say that the muzzle of the apple... Um, I'm sorry. He's saying that the... It, he's doing a double negative here. He said, first asked rhetorically, are you going to say that the vegetative power in the soil is also sweet? That the soil itself is sweet? Of course not. Right? You can't say that regarding the soil. But you can't say that you can't say that regarding the spiritual mazel of the apple on the sabayim levels, right? But in truth, the physical qualities like flavors of sweetness or bitterness do derive from their sources in the attributes of chesed and gvura. Sweetness from chesed and bitterness from gvura. So he says that in truth, the sweetness of an apple, or as I wrote in the email, the tartness of a grapefruit, depending on the grapefruit that you're buying, right, that you get, some grapefruits are a little bit bitter, so the sweetness or bitterness of a fruit is actually coming from chesed and gvura. Although these attributes are spiritual, however, through his and the system of the descent of levels, they become materialized until chesed is translated into sweetness. As I said, as I started today's class, the question is though, what's the true sweetness? The true sweetness is chesed. The true bitterness is gvura. It's only manifest in physical taste after it descends, it tumbles through these worlds, through these four levels and dimensions until it takes on physical incarnation. It takes on physical form as a sweet apple or a tart or bitter um, grapefruit. But that's how the spiritual, the spiritual flavor translates into physical reality. But the point is the physical flavor originates in a spiritual source. And it's not that the spiritual is a reflection of the physical. It's the other way around. The physical is a mirror of the spiritual. The physical, this is the derivative. This is the end result of a long chain of evolution to the point that it evolves as a physical apple. But it's coming from chesed. So you you bite into an apple. What do you taste? Something sweet. Where does it come from? Chesed of atzilut. Chesed of atzilut. Exactly. Taste the candy. Where does it come from? The angel Michael. The angel Michael? Are you sure? Because I didn't see him in the room. It's from the angel Michael. Where do you think sweet comes from? The angel is an energy. Michael is chesed. It's the energy of chesed. That's where sweet comes from. That's where candies come from. So flavor, sweet flavor, is a very dim, very dim embodiment of a larger cosmic energy of sweetness, of kindness. As I'll say soon, there's other forms of sweetness. Sweet music, right? A sweet idea, an idea that thrills the mind. These are other forms of sweetness that have been less evolved. No, that's the word. Less devolved than the candy, right? Less devolved, right? They're more evolved. They're closer to the source, right? Wisdom, a sweet idea of wisdom. It's like, ah, in Yiddish, you would use the word gishmak. Gishmak means, uh oh, tasty, sweet. It's, it's amazing. Ah, oh, it's delicious. Gishmak. And ideas could be gishmak. Could be sweet. You would say that with an idea. An idea is also sweet. Right? Uh, an action or an emotion, a sentiment is also sweet. Music is also sweet. This is the same. It all comes from the same place. Chesed of, of the world of emanation. But it's devolved to that point. An apple comes all the way down into a physical form that you can bite. Okay. Sweet. But that's not where sweetness comes from. Okay, let's see this inside. So yeah. if every entity
1: has all 10 spheros, what would the apples, what would we see in an apple? If it's intellectual.
0: So- oh, excellent. Donna's asking a question. If everything has all 10 spheros, so we talked about the chesed of an apple, if it's sweet. Where's the wisdom of an apple? So here's the big idea. And, and if I haven't clarified this previously or even ever, I apologize. The only thing that we say that has all ten energies guaranteed is the human being, is the human soul. Everything else is an amalgam of ten energies, but it might have only one or two and not the others. Only the human being, when, when the Torah says that the human being is created in the image of God... But isn't everything in the image of God? And what does it mean to be in the image of God? Kabbalah explains that only the human being has a soul that has all ten energies in full measure. I mean, you know, everyone has a little bit tweaked, but all ten energies. Whereas an apple, for example, might just be chesed with another one or two. It doesn't necessarily have, certainly not the intellectual pieces of it. The human being is unique. Now, everything in the universe is created Utilizing the ten energies, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily reflected in those, in those entities. So back inside, let's see how he explains um, the, the evolution or devolution from chesed to physical taste. True, he says, last paragraph on uh, 294, true, sweetness and chesed are incomparably distant and unrelated. Not really unrelated, but it seems to be unrelated. It seems like, okay, chesed, is kindness. Chesed of Atzilot is like divine kindness. And sweetness of an apple? What's this? Like, it seems like they're incomparably distant and unrelated. But they do have qualities in common. They are of the same basic order. Spiritually too, he says, there are numerous forms of sweetness. Pleasure in intellect is a form of sweetness. right? When you take pleasure in learning something, Right? Wow. It's like you get excited about it. Sweet. As is pleasure in music, which is on a lower plane than intellect. So you have, you know, if we were ranking pleasures, and by the way, at the beginning of this book, if you remember, like a few hundred pages ago, he did rank pleasures. And he talked about a very similar construct where you have intellectual pleasure standing above musical pleasure, standing above eating pleasure. So you have you know, for ranking pleasures, and this is not, it's not a judgment of pleasure. It's just simply ranking it in terms of spirituality or ethereality. You have an idea is more sublime than music, which is more sublime than food, than an apple. It's just the way it is. But they're all sweet. You can have sweetness in all these levels. So sweetness originates in a pure spiritual form, and then it's manifest in an idea, in um, music, and in food. And I want to tell you this. When you study Kabbalah and Chassidus, everything is precise. Because literally these examples that he's giving are explaining the four worlds evolution when it comes to sweetness. And I'm going to get a little bit meta. To, let's, let's understand the analogies that, that he's bringing here because it's very powerful. Chesed, kindness, begins in the world of Hatzilat, the world of emanation. That's where it begins. And on that level, it's pure godly, not God, pure godly chesed and kindness. Pure God, pure divine sweetness. It's godly sweetness. What form is it taking on? It's not taking on a form yet. It's pure divine sweetness. Now, it's not Ein Sof, because above that, in the the realm of Ein Sof, you can't even call it Kindness. Remember in the Ain in the realm of the infinite, you don't have the ten firot. You don't have chesed as chesed, you don't have chesed as kindness. You have just an infinite, you have an infinite light, infinite light reality. The first space where you can call it chesed, kindness as a as a self-defined or self-contained energy is at silut. But on that level, it's godly kindness, godly chesed. What form does it take? It's not taking a form yet. It's it's pure divine kindness. The next step down the world the four worlds correspond to spiritual intellectual emotional and physical so in the first world atzilut, spiritual kindness how how is it manifest it's not manifest yet spiritual kindness divine kindness the next world down it's going to be intellectual kindness or sweetness or pleasure and what is that ideas the next world down emotional kindness or sweetness what is that how is that manifest music music gets us excited gets our Right? Gets our heart excited. It's an emotional experience. Can one argue that music is an intellectual experience? I don't know. I think music, music excites us. Music stirs the heart and the spirit of us. Music is, I think, primarily an emotional experience. So ideas are Bria, second world, the world of creation. Uh, emotions are Yitzirah the third world down, and physical food, right here. So what he's doing is he's charting the course of devolution from the first world of Atzilut, pure kindness, pure sweetness, into intellectual sweetness of an idea, emotional sweetness of music, and then physical sweetness of an apple. That's the chain of descent. That's how things, that's how kindness, that's how chesed devolves or moves from one level to the other. Does that make sense? Yeah. I would say that music is also intellectual. I look at it as like prayers uh, versus Kabbalah.
1: So, right, so just, we experience it first, emotionally, yes. The sounds, they they just have a visceral effect. But especially those that are trained in music, right? They can appreciate, you know, the chords,
0: so Donna is saying that music could also be into, uh, experienced and appreciated intellectually. But I would say that the goal of a composer, even if he or she is, is, is relating an idea, the goal is to take a person in. And that begins and, and is, uh, is expressed, I would say, most immediately in the heart. Right? It's, it's getting a person in. By the way, even prayer is called in the Talmud, Avodah shabalev, which means Hey Dr. Max, good to see you. Which means the idea of uh, service of the heart—it's primarily an emotional experience. Although, of course, as you're s- speaking to, there is meditation and understanding of the prayers and intentionality, yes. But first and foremost, we approach prayer as a heart, I emotional think have experience. To
1: say prayers in that camp, as
0: opposed to our Kabbalah study, is intellectual. So right. Oh, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Although, yeah, yeah. I think even Kabbalah can be experienced on different levels. You can experience, and in truth, there's two different forms of Hasidic uh, Hasidic discourses. There's more Haskalah and more Avaida. Haskalah means there's more discourses that are more intellectual, like what we're doing now is a little bit more cerebral. And then there are discourses or even parts of a discourse that are more like emotional and, and get you excited and like, okay, let's go. Let's go, boys. Here we're talking about like how things descend from one world to the next, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit up there. But we're trying to pull out right. But the idea, the big idea here is, and I think he's, it's so cool how he's mirroring the process, even in his analogy, without stating clearly that he's doing so. But I think he's charting the course of all four worlds. The big idea here is that anything that originates in anything that exists in the highest world will at some point devolve in the lower dimensions. So you have pure chesed, pure kindness, pure sweetness, divine sweetness, that then, when it takes one step down, to the world of Bria, the intellectual world, manifests as a sweet idea, an exciting idea. In the world of Yitzchir, one more step down. In the world of emotions, it's manifest as beautiful music that gets you going. And in the last world, the final world, world of action, the world of concrete... Things it's manifest as an apple that you can taste and eat and consume, but it's all from the same. It's there's a line that connects all of these realities. Divine kindness, divine chesed, an idea, music, and an apple. If I were to show you images, what is the similarity between an apple, a composition, and uh, and an idea? Yeah, sweet. Chesed. It's chesed all three. All three are chesed. And the chesed begins on that fourth, the highest rung, that not the fourth world, the highest of the four worlds, which is Atsillah, which is a godly world. It's not God, it's not Ain Sof, it's not infinite. You see, the difference between Ain Sof in a world is simply this. Can you use expressions like chesed? You can't use chesed kindness in Ain Sof, because Ain Sof literally means infinite, which really means indescribable. In the ain't-sof, you can't attribute the attributes, because otherwise it's not ain't-sof. It's chesed, it's Kavura, it's Ferret. You're suddenly using adjectives to describe. That's not ain't-sof. Ain't-sof means indescribable. You can't use any types of adjectives. You can't use any, any, any wording. So, the ain't-sof realm, in other words, the divine, infinite, essential ain't-sof realm, infinite realm, is beyond the your sefirot. Once you get into the four worlds, the highest world already has a definition called kindness amongst others. There's kindness. That might be pure. It might be divine. It might be godly. It might be ethereal or spiritual. Wonderful. But it's still called kindness. And it now serves as the source for a sweet idea, a sweet piece of music, and a sweet apple. That's how it all unfolds from that highest realm. Let's go back inside. So we just talked about chesed, right? Between 294 and 296, we spoke about from spiritual to existence. In other words, from spiritual to practical. And how you have chesed, for example. Chesed, kindness, you know, when somebody does something kind, it's sweet. right? Chesed, pure chesed and kindness devolving into ideas and music and apples and producing what what, what we call sweet here below. Not only chesed, now up to chachma. He mentions this very quickly. Chachma too, chachma means wisdom. Chachma too exists on ever ascending planes of transcendence. When he says ever ascending, what he means is starting from our vantage point. It goes up, 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 up. But again, the whole f- point that I started today was it doesn't. The movement doesn't go from below to above. It really begins from above to below. The true meaning of chachma is above, and we have a taste of chachma below. The true meaning of sweet is above in chesed. And our apple, it's a a little sweet. Anyone have issues with oranges lately? Maybe just where I'm buying them. Did I mention this recently? I feel like I mentioned this in a class or two. I think as a kid, I remember oranges being like really sweet. Now the stuff that I buy locally, I I feel like I'm just not buying the the good stuff. If anybody knows where to get a sweet orange, let me know, huh? The little ones. Yeah, but I like the the bigger ones, like the navel oranges. That's what I'm saying. It's that's what I, that's exactly what I'm experiencing. It's not so tasty. It's a little bit hard. You yeah. open it up and it's like crumbly. Yeah. It's, it's, anyway, yeah. <laughs> so what I'm saying is for sure that orange is a very dim representation of chesed of atzilut, of the real sweetness. That, I'm saying, what, what I'm saying is right. What I'm saying is even oranges today are a, a dim representation of the oranges of yesteryear as I'm romanticizing the oranges of my youth. Anyway, back in, I'm sure there still exist oranges that are delicious and sweet. I actually had that experience. I went to a farmer's market before Passover. Now, Leah went to the DeCab, or sorry, your DeCab farmer's market, which is tremendous. But, they didn't have one thing that we needed. Nuts in shells. Now, here's why. Because you may know this. Chabad on Passover... We peel or crack everything ourselves. Okay, with rare exception. Like wine we're buying processed and matzo we're buying because we're not doing that ourselves. And meat and chicken and fish we're buying, you know, kind of as is. Obviously kosher for Passover, but as is. But everything else, vegetables, we peel. Tomatoes, you guessed it. We're peeling tomatoes. Everything is being peeled and cracked. So to buy nuts that are already pre-extracted is theoretically fine, but for the for for the you know the chabad extremism <laughs> where where we want to do everything ourselves, so she couldn't find for whatever reason at the cab farmers market she couldn't find any unopened nuts. So I, I I drove out to Buford Farmers Market where I found a collection of nuts, and then that was my goal. My my task was get the nuts right in the shells. I found. It. I asked the guy. He's like, I don't think we have any. Then I kept on exploring, foraging through the thing. I found a display. Grabbed a, a few bags full. Great. It was wonderful. On the way out, as I'm walking through, I'm like, all these exotic stuff. Eggplant. I've never seen this stuff before. Like, just colorful stuff. I didn't even know what. But I passed the oranges. And they looked very good. So I bought, a few, I bought two oranges for the ride home. Man, those were sweet. I'm like, ah, they still exist somewhere. Anyway, so we talked. We uh, Those were good? Yeah. Oh, so there you go. So they were blessed by, uh, by Passover. So here's the deal. You know, when it comes to taste and flavor, we hopefully we know, we should know, we should believe that whatever we can taste, no matter, no, no matter the extent of our palate and our ability to taste, it's a, it's, it's a drop in the bucket in comparison to the true flavors out there. You know, even with hearing, we know this, right? The human ear can only perceive a very limited um, range of uh, a very limited amount of the of the um, of the range of sound. We have a very finite ability. Even the way we can see, we can only see a certain range of of colors. The same is true with every experience. Our experience in this physical world is not the be all and end all. It's not where it starts. Sweetness doesn't start with an apple or with an orange. Sweetness starts above in atzilut. And on that level, man, that's sweet. That's really sweet. And what we get is, you take a big light and you cut it down, cut it down, cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. We're getting a taste. Can you imagine what it's like up there? You know, we think about this in the, in the context of, you know, um, the world to come. You know, it says like, this is, our world is this world, and then the afterlife is the world to come. Olam haba, world to come, i.e., the next world. And we say that the soul experiences the pleasure in that world. Experiences pleasure in that world. And there are books of Kabbalah and Jewish philosophy that try to explain, right, what that pleasure is like. And we can't understand it. Because we are, we're so stuck in a physical world. Understanding a pleasure that we can't imagine what pure, higher-level spiritual pleasure would feel like. But let's put it this way. It's like whatever we have on steroids. It's like the ultimate pleasure. The Baal Shem Tev told a parable. It's a great story. There was once a wagon driver. This wagon driver was the lowest of the low. It was a low life. Every sin in the book he committed. But here's what happened. One day, somebody was stuck on the side of the road in danger of dying, and this guy saved his life. And, you know, you save a life, that's it. So he passes away after 120 years, the wagon driver does, and he goes to heaven, heavenly court, this guy, (laughs) low life. But he saved a life, all right, he's admitted into heaven. But there's a big debate that breaks out amongst the angels. I mean, on the one hand, he really doesn't deserve it. On the other hand, he did save a life, so he had that one thing. So what do you do? So they decided to tell him the news, Tell the wagon driver, you have heaven. And then let him decide what type of heaven it's like. Because they couldn't figure it out. He said, what do you want? What do you want as your reward? The wagon driver says, you know what I want? I want a good paved road, <laughs> strong horses, and a good whip, and a good carriage. And so the Bashamta says, so for eternity now, there he is on the road with his wagon and the horses and a whip saying, giddy up, or whatever you say. If you're a wagon driver, I have no idea. I've never driven (laughs) them. What's the point? This guy could get anything, but he's a wagon driver. And what's 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 heaven? Paradise for a wagon driver? Good horses, a smooth a smooth road, smooth road, and uh, and a comfortable ride. That's don't be a wagon driver. That's the point. Don't be a wagon driver. You could be a wagon driver. Think bigger than a wagon driver. It's like I'll give you another parable. This is a powerful one. It's once a story, a king and, and his prince, his son, so his son did something very bad. And, his, the, and, the, and the prince did something very bad. And so the king, with a heavy heart, banished him into exile. He kicked him out of the house, out of the palace, and he said, go. And there the king is, you know, trying to figure out his life, you know, just feeling, you know, kicked out and abandoned, or whatever it is, and going through all these types of things. And he finds, a, you know, a group of people that are wandering and also nomadic, and he joins up with them, and he learns their ways and how they go about eating and, and you know, just eking out life day to day. And, uh, you know, there, he, he's living out, you know, he doesn't have a house, doesn't have a home, doesn't have a shelter. He's living just, you know, on whatever in the fields. And he sees these guys, they, you know, they have little little huts that they've built, and he learns from them how to build a hut. Um, but, you know, some of them have upgraded huts with, with better materials. And that's how he's living for a few years. Well, one day, the news reaches this little farm or village that the king is, a, is going to be driving through. And the rumor is, or the, the legend is, or the tradition is, that when the king drives by, the windows are open, or it's an open carriage, and you can write any petition you want, fold it up in a piece of paper, and you can throw it toward the carriage. If it gets in, if it reaches the king, then he, pro- he guarantees always, he, get, he, he delivers it. He, 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 he will do it, whatever you ask. So all, all of them show up, and the prince also shows up, and he writes his note, and the carriage goes by, and he throws it in. And lo and behold, it goes in. His shot makes it. Swoosh, it goes in. The king reads it, and he recognizes his son's handwriting. And it says, Dear king, I'd like good straw to build a hut, or to build a better hut. He starts crying. It's like, of all the things he could ask for. <laughs> asked to come back to the palace. He asked for a better straw to build a hut. But think about our lives, right? We, we, we take this as like, it is what it is. And what do we ask for? A sweeter apple, a sweeter orange, you know, a little bit a smoother road, a better ride. That's our hasagas. That's, that's, where, that's, where, our meant, that's where our vision caps out at. The point here is there's something much higher, there's something much, something much greater. Let's have a little bit of a bigger vision than just the here and now. So when we are tasting an apple, as sweet as it is, let's say we get that holy grail orange of yesteryear. As sweet as that is, can you imagine what chesed of Atzilat is? Can you imagine how sweet that is? That's the real sweetness. That's where it comes from. Right? Our manifestation is a dim. It's like a, it's like artificial compared to what it is in the source. Let's, and that same thing is true with chachma. Right? Chachma exists, all, chachma too exists on ever ascending planes of transcendence. Chachma in the 10th sphere of Asiya, our chachma, has something in common and a relationship with Chachma Vatzilot. So we do have, there is a line that could be drawn between our Chachma, our wisdom, as smart as we are, and divine wisdom of, of Atzilut. Through a myriad of descents, Chachma Vatzilot becomes Chachma Vasiya. It descends level by level by level by, I don't know, generally four levels, but sub levels, level by level into our Chachma. But imagine the wisdom and the brilliance. Of Chachma, Vatsil Chachma, the world of emanation. It's mind blowing what that Chachma would look like. What we're going to do, next, so we're going to stop here, although we're in the middle of, of a chapter, because what he gets into is the analogy of an analogy. He gets very meta. He'll bring an analogy, and the analogy of, of an, is of an analogy, and how an analogy works to explain the difference between going from the infinite to Atsilot, the first world, versus going from the first world to the fourth world. And this is what, in summary, this is what's important to take away from today's class intellectually, and then we'll speak also emotionally. Intellectually, what to take away from today's class is the following. All told, there are five dimensions that we've discussed today. The four worlds, and above the worlds, above even the highest world, is the ain Sof, the infinite, infinite God. The infinite essence of God does not have ten spheroid energies the Chachma Chesed, not that God doesn't, because it sounds like I'm limiting God, but it's not defined as a, as a contained energy. It's not a, it's not a definitive energy. It ain't so if it's infinite. To go from the infinite to the, to the first world, to the highest world, is an unbelievable jump. Only God can go from infinite to finite. Once you have worlds with definition, to go from a pure form. To a concretized form, it's a journey, but it's a relative journey. You're going from the first world to the fourth world. It's a relative journey. It's a traversable journey. It can happen. To bring it back to the concept of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the rest of the year and the blessings that we have, very simply, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Ein Sof, the infinite, is being manifest into a finite definition of chesed for the individual. That chesed subsequently unfolds for the rest of the year. Right, that has that subsequently unfolds into Bria, Yitzira, Asiya into the world of creation, emanation, uh, creation, formation, action, into our physical reality, to manifest as physical money, physical apples, physical music, physical ideas, whatever blessings we have, that's how it's manifest as it goes throughout the year. But in the source, in Atzilut, in the first world, it's still contained those definitions, because ultimately the first world and the fourth world are not infinitely distant. They're all somewhat relative to each other, even though it's a big jump. So we have two ideas. Number one, that our world, our reality, is but a dim representation of the highest reality, the highest realm. But at the same time, it is a representation. And they are connected. There is a line that that connects. Above that into the infinite, wireless. Wireless. It's a much bigger gap. What does it mean for us emotionally? What it means for us, and what, what, what to do with all this information. So on a few levels. Number one, when we pray every single day, we pray for our blessings. Let's remember that the, that, the, that, the, that the process has already been started. On Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it already filtered down into the world of emanation. In other words, it's already taken somewhat of a form. All we need to do is bring it down into our reality. I don't want to minimize the effort, but the point is we're not pulling it out of thin air. We're pulling it out of something that's already been earmarked for us. So as we pray every day, we should pray with confidence and pray with uh, the with, with sense of certainty that indeed Hashem will bless us with what we need. That's number one. Number two, we can think about it in our own lives, how we have ideas and dreams that are not super abstract but are, but, but are relatively focused. But maybe they haven't hit the world of action yet. And let's think about what we can do in our own lives to manifest, to use a modern term, to manifest what it is that we wish for ourselves and we wish for the world. Instead of remaining in that atsilot emanation dream state, right, the state of dreams or even the state of ideas or even the state of emotions, let's bring it into the state of action and actually do what it is that we wish for ourselves and for the world. It's good to have ideas. It's good to have feelings. It's good to have ideas. It's good to have a vision. But it's even better to implement it into practical reality. So let's take on resolutions of real mitzvah, practical good deeds. We're all good people. But there's a difference between the the vision of goodness and the actuality of goodness. Let's actually take our hands and our feet and our bodies and do a mitzvah this week that perhaps we don't typically do. Why? Because we'd like to do it, but we never got around to doing it. But let's do it. Like Nike said, just do it. Bring it into the realm of action. And that way, we, we, uh, we connect the continuum from the highest to the lowest into our practical world. In other words, eat of the apple. It's not forbidden fruit or something like that. All right. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today for Cabal and Coffee. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, the main thing is the action. Michael, David, Joy, Danielle, great to see you. Linda and Mariana. Great to see you, great to have you here, and Tim, and Sandrine, and Donna, and Marnine. It's great to be here together, Um, and study. So please, God, we'll have uh, opportunities to study, many opportunities to study, and continue the inspiration. This week, quick announcement, this week, tonight is Book Club, 8 p.m., in person and online. Tomorrow night, special event called Jewish Wisdom to Heal the Earth, in person, Tuesday night, online, JLI Beyond Right, the Function of of Personal Rehabilitation in the Context of Law. And uh, Wednesday night, Torah Studies, Thursday day, JLI class, same class, and the week rolls on. All right, Thursday's class, JLI class is in person with bagels, lox, cream cheese, veggies, coffee, tea, and of course, bad jokes. All right, (laughs) questions or comments? No. Okay.
1: I, I have a comment. Yeah. You know, I, I, it was interesting when you talked about the the parable of of you know essentially the guy who asked for the hay or whatever that, you know somehow we're not asking for enough. Right. But but there's a question. You know, and I'm, I'm reminded if you know, if you ask a little child, you know, what is your wish, and the child says something like world peace, and that's that's admirable. Yes, we all want that, but is it achievable? And so I think as adults we tend to all, you know, ratchet back. Yeah. Our our requests and also what we try to achieve. You know, you said, do a mystery you haven't done before. But you know, you still would say to yourself, I'm going to do something I can achieve, right? I don't want to do. Right. It. So so, where is the point at which you say, well, no, you know, you, you have to be a pragmatist. Yeah. You know, you have to be sort of you know realistic about all this. That's
0: a good question. I would say being pragmatic is. I'm not. I, I'm thinking like the word curse, but it's. It. I don't say the ultimate curse, but it is. It, it holds us back because there's something precious about that naivete of a child who believes they can do it. And sometimes, you know what? Brings a smile to a face. You know, there might be a tense conversation happening in a room and a child walks in. And you know what? The room, the room, the tension is diffused. And is that world peace? I don't know. But is that room peace? Maybe. Maybe room peace had achieved. So I think we have to be, I do not have to be. I think you're raising a beautiful idea. And... <laughs> Some of the greatest Kabbalists would say, if I only could pray with the mind of a child. That pure, that purity, that pure naivete. It's, yes, you're right. As we get older, we get realistic. We scale back our dreams. But I would say that's part of the problem. (laughs) That's what I would say.
1: Well, I mean, the very fact that we're having this conversation via something called Zoom. And many of us on a device called an iPad. Right. And if somebody had even said 50 years ago, even 30 years ago, that this would be a prominent form of meeting and communication, no one would have, oh no, You? no, no, no. And so I understand the balance between what Michael's saying and what you're saying. And I guess my question is, is, you know, is there some way I can better align myself with those higher realms in order to perhaps bring down those events and are even, you know, we get into what we call a miracle obviously right. is happening at some level above us.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I, I think it's about plugging into higher dimensions of truth and higher realities. And um, Tim, I'll give you a call. I'll call you. That's what I've been in. My question. How to connect with what, oh, what Doctor Max says? How, how to get do the do. blessings? Right, but I think I think Doctor Max is asking not necessarily how to get the blessings, but how to align with that higher space to see it so that that becomes a little bit more real and a little bit more I don't know believable as opposed to just something that's like uh, that's up there. Look, um, it's hard to shed. The layers that we put on ourselves, like we protect ourselves with layers of of rea- rea- realism. It's like because we had these dreams and they didn't pan out, and we had these loves and our hearts were broken, and we had these dreams and they crashed and burned. And it's like hard to like put ourselves out there. I think one of the one of the the goals of Kabbalah and Chassidus and Torah in general is to allow us to to, to have to, to connect with something a little bit deeper, something on a higher level. Certainly Kabbalah, which is, you know, within Torah, it would be the Atzilut of Torah. You have pshat, remez, drush, sod. There's the simple meaning, which is analogous to our physical world. You have the allegorical meaning, which is the world of formation above us. There's the homiletical world, which is the world of Bria. And then you have the Kabbalah, Right, The world of Kabbalah is the world of Atzilut, the world of spirituality. And so when we study Kabbalah, we're literally interfacing with that world, with the highest world. So I think what we're doing here on Sundays is getting a taste of that higher vision, of that higher reality. How to integrate that into our workday when we're dealing with uh, you know, sour, <laughs> not-so-sweet oranges? I don't know. Okay, so we have a little bit of time. We give ourselves a little bit of time to, uh, you know, to plug in and connect. But it's really beautiful how we have, classically in Torah, these same four dimensions that correspond to the four worlds, that correspond to the four energies, you know, spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and physical. It's kind of cool how we have that. And if we want to plug into the soul, then, you know, soul is connected with soul. So our soul connected with the soul of Torah, which is Kabbalah, connected with the soul of of everything in the world, that's a cool thing. I mean, Kabbalah gives us the vision to look at things, not as an apple, but as... Chesed. thats literally what we, the the, the 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 language that we have to speak about these these ideas today—all comes from Kabbalah and Chassidus, which is telling us to look at an apple not just as an apple, but as an, a derivation of Chesed of Great. So now we're thinking about Chesed Atzilut instead of apples. That's, that's a good step one. Okay, I don't I don't I don't I don't have it mapped out exactly like what step two, but that's a good step one. Step two is you know try to integrate that into our lives. See things a little bit deeper. Let's not be that. To me, that story with the prince who's basically given up and just wants a better, you know, a better hut. Just give me a little bit, little bit of a better hut. Let me upgrade a hut. Like, better straw. But it's us. It's us. So often we ask for a little bit of a, a, little bit of a better hut. For thinking big, it would be different. I think God wants us yeah, to yeah, think big. Yeah, but-
1: i say you have to be careful. I mean, maybe a better hut would give that individual the ability to do so much more. In other words, we look at it as, you know, why, why do you have more than a hut? Come on. But, you know, maybe if I only had a hut, then I would feel confident in my living conditions and would be free or able to, you know, Sure. I think about, you know, people talk about health care. You know, why should we provide health care, okay, to people? And one of the arguments is we well, should provide health care because then they wouldn't have to worry about sticking with their job. And because they need that for healthcare, and they could be an entrepreneur and they could go out and start a new business. So it seems like a simple thing, like all I want is health care. But that then could allow me to right. you know, give me the freedom to do other. You're
0: 100 percent right. In other words, the hut could be a gateway exactly. to a A hundred percent. You're right. And I'm not knocking the hut. I'm just saying that if we're studying Kabbalah anyway, let's just let's let's talk about the big stuff. Also, you're right. The and, process and, and, may be incremental to build up there but practically. I think, yeah.
1: I think it comes back to what Joy was talking about earlier, you know, the, the idea that we don't know what's what's achievable. We don't know what's going to happen. So so you should, you know, you should you should go for for it all. It, right. You should for the, the big thing. And you know, eventually we'll get there. I mean, I I remember a story years ago I worked for a company and and somebody the pre, president of the company asked the VP of engineering at a at a corporate meeting, "Can you do such and such?" And the, the answer was, "Yes, we can, given enough time and money." Okay? Right. It's like, you know, everything eventually we will get to, but, you know, <laughs> Okay.
0: By the way, I believe, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not an expert, and I, I, wasn't at the case. Theranos. Remember Elizabeth Holmes? I believe that that was. I, I, believe that she believed that, given enough time and money, she would crack that, that thing, and she was just trying to buy it, and eventually, it, I mean, it just, it collapsed on her. But I, I you know, I mean, people attribute all sorts of uh, intention to people, and it's not really fair to do so without knowing. But I, I am. That's what I believe. I I believe that, you know. I can't. I don't know if her heart was in the right place. I don't know if it was about people or about the money. I don't know what it, what it was about. But you're right. With enough time and enough money, probably that could have been solved, at least on some level. They ran out, and everyone pulled out, and that was it. And she was left with overpromising too early. Whatever. Anyway, I'm not. I'm not justifying it. I'm not weighing in on the. Uh, let the Justice Department deal with all, with that stuff. Um. <laughs> I don't even know where that case is holding, but I have to look at that again. But the bottom line is, you're right, we, we have to recognize our limitations even as we shoot for the stars. So, listen, the, the line is shoot for the stars because, you know, at least you'll get somewhere, I forget the exact, maybe you'll hit the, I don't know, whatever, maybe you'll hit somewhere even if it's not the stars 100%. All right, great to see you all. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful week. Shavuot tov. Let's uh, let's go big. All right, we'll see you guys. Take care, everybody. Shavuot tov. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at InTown jewish academy new episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week if you don't want to miss a single episode then hit the subscribe button if you enjoyed today's episode please take a moment to leave a rating or review it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast thanks so much for listening and i hope you have a wonderful day